Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Many, many years ago, very briefly, I worked for Robert Maxwell on a teen magazine called Rage, Captain Bob's attempt to topple smash hits. I doubt he knew very much about Rage or indeed 2000 AD comic, which he also briefly owned and was next door. I left and got another job. Two days later, the body of Robert Maxwell was found floating in the Atlantic and my new boss ran up to me and said, what did you know? I didn't know anything. Someone who knows everything about Maxwell's life and very nearly everything about his mysterious death is John Preston, author of Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell. He's a former Evening Standard and Sunday Telegraph arts editor and the author of the books that became The Dig on Netflix now and the BBC's fantastic Jeremy Thorpe drama, A Very English Scandal. And he's here with us today in the bunker. John, thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me. The book is absolutely astonishing. There is no question that Maxwell was a fat crook and he was a bullying monster. And the people I worked with could not bear him and, and, and feared him stomping around the building. But I didn't think you could make me feel for Robert Maxwell. And you, and you did. You made me feel sympathy for this strange, gargantuan, weird man. Why did you want to write it? What, what had the world misunderstood about Maxwell? I'd always been fascinated by Maxwell. I mean, you know, if you worked in Fleet Street in the 80s and 90s, he was this, well, particularly the 80s, you know, there was absolutely no escaping him. And he was kind of, he seemed to be both ridiculed and feared invariably by the same people. And he was this big, big mythical creature. And then, of course, he died. And it was revealed that he'd looted the pension funds. And he was branded this kind of, you know, the embodiment of corporate villainy. And I guess that's how he's still remembered now, 30 years on. And I get, and I wanted, it seemed to me that so much as sort of black paint had been tipped over his head in a way that he'd been turned into a kind of pantomime villain. And I wanted to see what lay behind that and what forces had made him the way that he was. And I wasn't particularly interested in judging him because I didn't really feel that's my job, but I just, I did want, insofar as it's possible, to try and understand him. It's called Fall, the mystery of Robert Maxwell, but the mystery isn't so much him falling off the, the Lady Ghislaine yacht. It's it's this entire bizarre life. He seems to accrue money and power almost out of nowhere. How, how did he do it? There can't be many people in the 20th century who journeyed as far from their origins as Maxwell did. He was born in this dirt poor little uh, town village in uh, western Czechoslovakia as it then was to a Jewish family he left age kind of 15 or 16 to try and find his fortune three of his siblings both his parents and his grandfather all died in Auschwitz and Maxwell joined up with the British army during the war and he was sitting around in Berlin in 1946 and he was editing a, a British language news, an English language newspaper, which was designed to kind of re-educate Berliners into the joys of democracy. And a man walked in one day and said, um, oh, can you help me? Um, I am the Germany's largest pub publisher of scientific journals, and I've got no one to publish my stuff and a huge backlog of stuff because no one's published anything during the war. Can you help me? And Maxwell's first instinct was to kick him out because that was his first instinct with everybody, really. And then he thought, hold on, maybe I can help this guy. And he kind of always dreamt of getting this commodity for which you could acquire for next to nothing that was going to be in huge demand after the war. And out of nowhere, it had just landed in his lap, and the, and the commodity was knowledge. And he went on to become the, world, the world's largest publisher of scientific journals and then embarked on this, what turned out to be, horribly ill-fated attempt to become the world's biggest media baron. 
the entire bit with kind of educational and technical publishing astounded me because as, as a as a you know as a teenager fascinated by newspapers i used to think well, how much money can there possibly be in, in technical writing but of course what you demonstrate is he more or less created that sector of publishing in the english-speaking world it seemed to it, you know he owned it because he'd more or less built it with pergamon press yeah, and it was a fantastic. I mean, it was a fantastic cash cow, because these obscure academics didn't expect to be paid for their work. They were just thrilled to see it in print. And what was more, he could get these universities and libraries to sign up. It was a bit like buying an encyclopedia. So you could, you know, you could pay, and you would get this thing for years and years and years in advance. But obviously, you'd have to keep paying for it. So. He really did make a lot of money very quickly out of this thing that no one had ever actually successfully monetized before. That that scene you just described, where a man wanders into a bar and says, "Hello, I am the I am the Germany's largest publisher of academic journals," is almost the kind of thing that, if it appeared in a drama, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, did you ever find yourself thinking, "I'm kind of writing a Graham Greene story here. This is this is too good. This is more like fiction than like real life." All the astonishing things he pulled off. Yes, I did. But weirdly, I'd had the same feeling when I was writing a very English scandal. I would kind of periodically find myself emitting these snorts of disbelief at these completely insane things these people got up to. And Maxwell, you know, astonishing things happened around Maxwell and very funny things and, and, and absurd things. I mean, whether Maxwell himself had a sense of humour is a pretty moot point, but funny things unquestionably happened around him and, and scarcely credible things as well. You discovered, I mean, it's, the, what's fascinating about the book is it is a mixture of that kind of bizarre comedy, almost like that great ITV series, Hot Metal of the 80s, and genuine horror. I mean, you discover that when he was with the British Army, he had no problem with shooting German civilians who'd surrendered. And you, uh, throughout the book, you, you start to think that it's almost as if people aren't real to him. Do you think he had sociopathic tendencies? I, I mean, it's conceivable. But on the other hand, you have to realise that everything that happened to Maxwell has to be seen through this prism of tragedy, yeah. what happened to his own family. And I think there was enormous rage there. And you're absolutely right. He did almost certainly uh, shoot unarmed Germans who may well have surrendered as well. But, and that obviously doesn't excuse it, but he felt throughout his life this absolute brimming fury, resentment, and to some extent, of course, guilt that his most of his family had died, but he had managed to survive. There's one really heartbreaking moment sort of late in his life when he's up in the apartment in Mirror Headquarters, which he's rechristened, rechristened Maxwell House in his, you know, continuing vast egotism. And he's watching a TV documentary about the Holocaust and his nose is pressed up against the screen. And I think it's one of his sons, isn't he? He says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my parents. This is what really changed my thinking about Maxwell reading your book is that I, I grew up thinking that he was this ludicrous figure of fun, always in private eye, always being mocked in cartoons, big fat man with ludicrous dyed hair. And that your book shows that it is, it's a tale of horrific trauma and not something that can ever be, be put away. And, and that at moments, Maxwell just seems so completely empty. There's, no, there's nothing left for him but ambition because the alternative is confronting this abject horror of what's happened to his family. Yeah, and I think that was, you, know, you honed in on that story, and I can completely understand why, because that was the moment when I thought to myself, mm, hold on, you know, whatever one thinks of Maxwell, this is just a desperately poignant story. I remember uh, when I sat down and first talked about the book to 
Ian Maxwell, who's one of his sons, as you say, uh, who I've known for a long time and, and, and was very helpful to me. And I said, you know, I really can't. Uh, I'm not going to try to excuse your father or, or paint him in a dramatically different light. But I, you know, what I do want to try and do is humanize him and and to make him into a properly flesh and blood creature. So I do hope that while people may not feel any more favorably inclined towards Maxwell after reading the book than they did at the beginning, that they might just have some spark of human feeling towards him. It's interesting what comes from the family aspect of it, the way he he, he was a bully and he could be incredibly petty. He bullied his kids. I mean, the, the, your images mm. of Christmas with the Maxwells are awful. He, make, he makes the kids stand up and perform effectively, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And berates yeah. them when they can't. There was an apocryphal tale when I worked very briefly for Maxwell about um, Maxwell hated smoking. And there's a chap in the lift enjoying a cigarette. The door's open. Maxwell gets in and says, you, how much do you earn? And the guy goes, uh, £16,000 a year. Maxwell peels off money, sticks it in his pocket and says, get out of here. I never want to see you again. And the guy was only there to deliver a package. The employees chose to believe that was true because it seemed it seemed to be so much the kind of thing that Maxwell would do, you know, just bully people through money. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not entirely convinced that story ever happened. But in a funny sort of way, it doesn't really matter because yeah. all the stories there are about Maxwell and everybody, you know, who worked at the Mirror, everybody I spoke to, has a fund of Maxwell stories. And what's fascinating is whether they actually turn out to be true or not, they all say something about the way in which Maxwell was perceived because they are on some level deemed to be credible. And also it's kind of hard to uh, be pinned down for making up stories about Maxwell when he made up stories about himself. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the gypsy woman who freed him when and all the amazing deeds that he pulled off. was that He was a fantasist as well, wasn't he? He was, a, but I mean, the weird, the weird thing is you can strip all the, the kind of uh, myth and puff out of Maxwell's life, and it's still an amazing kind of Technicolor epic. It doesn't necessarily need that <laughs> extra layer of myth on top of it. You interviewed Ian Maxwell and Christian and Isabel, the twin daughters. How do they, how do they feel about their father at 30 years remove? I think they feel that... He was someone who went off the rails. I mean, as 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 one of his daughters said to me, you know, I, I really do feel that towards the end of his life, my father had megalomania and it made him push everyone away. He turned against his wife, who'd actually been devoted to him. And he treated her appallingly. He turned against really all his, not, I didn't turn against them. I mean, he was just, he became more and more isolated and stuck up in his apartment in Maxwell House. He didn't have any friends. He was an insomniac. He was vastly overweight. And it's this story, you know, he, he backed himself into this terrible corner, both kind of personally and indeed financially, and he couldn't get out of it. One of the things that really stands out is that all, all the greed and the extra extravagance and, and the gold trimmings and so forth, are, as we've said, you know, at a, an attempt to get away from what has happened to him. You know, he was never admitted into the inner circle, was he? He was always considered to be naff and uh, by the, the the actual power brokers. And part of that was this idea that he was just this kind of tasteless foreigner. Do you think that that mockery in the eighties and the way Private Ike couldn't stop referring to his original name 
was there an element of not just old-fashioned establishment snobbery, but also sort of anti-Semitism in his treatments? Because he, he was sort yes. of in denial about his own Judaism, wasn't he? I, th- I think there was certainly an element of that. And he was a kind of, a, you know, after the war and the 50s and everything like this, he was reckoned to be this rather kind of spiffy Arabist figure. And I'm sure there was a sense of, you know, let's uh, teach this kind of uppity little man, well, not little man, large man, a lesson. And Maxwell himself had a very acute case of something that you see a lot, I think, in, in British political and public life, which is that simultaneous desire to sit at top table and to kill everyone else who sit, who's, who's sitting <laughs> at top table. Mm. Um, and, you know, he was furious that the establishment wouldn't let him in because that's really what he yearned for more than anything else. You know, as he told um, his fellow soldiers in the army at the end of the war, you know, I'm going to go to England and become a squire. Mm. And, you know, to some extent, that, that's what he always wanted. Yeah. I, I love the bit when he also he stands up and announces, I have decided to become prime minister at one yes, point. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he genuinely thought he could become prime minister as well. well I suppose one of, the, one of the odd things about that is that now, if that story were told now in the 2020s, then Maxwell would unquestionably be the hero. The outsider, the, the, <laughs> yes. the non-wasp, yeah. the guy not from the landed gent. He, he would be a modern disruptor, and he'd be on the front of Wired magazine, and, and he'd kind of be our hero, wouldn't he? Until we discovered that he'd looted all the pension funds. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in many respects, you know, the, the, one of the things that I felt, you know, was quite engaging about Maxwell's character was the way that he just consistently stuck two fingers up at kind of traditional British n- notions of correct behavior and politesse and everything like that. And there is something kind of admirable about someone who just does things on their own terms, irrespective of what anyone else thinks of them. Well, central to the book is the rivalry between Maxwell, who's impetuous and grandiose, and the other outsider, the much cooler, more strategic Murdoch, who saw Maxwell as a charlatan and a fool and a complete idiot and beats him serially. But Murdoch also sees himself as an outsider. Murdoch's life mission has been to overturn the elites. They should have been alike, shouldn't they? They should have been, well, maybe they were to some extent more alike than made either of them comfortable. But I mean, as far as, you know, they were locked in this titanic struggle really for 30 years to become the world's biggest media baron. And indeed, Ian Maxwell once said to me, well, what you have to realize is there was a period in the kind of late 80s when it was as if the only two people in the world breathing the same air were my father and Rupert Murdoch. That's kind of true, actually. I mean, you know, as far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was this sort of irritant that Murdoch did never cross Murdoch's mind that Maxwell belonged in the same kind of arena as him. But Maxwell was desperate to prove himself that that he was Murdoch's equal or better. And, you know, in trying to prove himself, basically set in train the seeds of his own destruction. Well, the financial scandal that, that ends him, where he's effectively moving money from company to company, buying his mm. own shares to boost the value, after his death it emerges, there's £760 million missing and £350 million of it is filched from the Mirror Group pension fund. The plan is both audacious and kind of comically simple. Again, how did he get away with this? He's surrounded by some of the smartest people in business. He's under the scrutiny of stock exchange officials and so forth. And yet he he... Uh, to an extent that, you know, that he gets away with it, he gets away with it. Well, 
I mean, this is an oversimplification, but it's yeah. not that much of an oversimplification that Maxwell for years and years and years would tell people that he had billions of pounds salted away in Liechtenstein, which of course is a tax haven. And because it's a tax haven, no, no one can prove whether you've got the money there or not. So I mean, basically, they took his word for it. And, you know, at one stage in the early 80s, Maxwell was making a lot of money. People, the same people who'd rubbished him years before were queuing up to, uh, to lend him money. And no one asked that many questions. And, you know, I mean, I remember my mother said to me when I was a child, you know, the one kind of important lesson she taught me, which is people take you at your own valuation of yourself. And I believe that's genuinely true in life. And Maxwell set a very, very high valuation <laughs> of himself and people bought into it. He missold himself. Yeah, he did. I mean, he completely did. Were it not for the impoverished mirror group pension people who lost all their savings, it's very nearly an admirable scam because the the, the huge number of people who are um, who are uh, swindled by this are maybe the kind of people that we'd be quite amused to see discomforted. Right, exactly. Yeah. Quite. And it's also, I mean, you know, it's a point worth making that. Maxwell wasn't a kind of Bernie Madoff type figure who was solely out to line his own pockets. I genuinely think he, if he had been able to, he would have been, he would have put the money back into the mirror pension funds. Now, now that of course comes as no consolation to mirror pensioners, but he wasn't actually trying to line his own pockets. In a funny sort of way, possessions didn't mean that much to him. He wasn't a particularly acquisitive man. You know, he lived in a rented house. He'd never bothered to buy anywhere. Weirdly, the only possession that he had that he was genuinely fond of was his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. Mm, which is a resonant name and also with the place of yeah, his death. exactly. Quite. Again, another thing you couldn't make up, another thing which if you yeah. put it in fiction, the editor would put a big circle around it. Yeah, exactly. In, a, in our current world of Zuckerbergs and Bezoses and, uh, as you say, T-shirted billionaires, will we ever see this sort of a person again? You, mean, you never hear the word tycoon anymore, do you? No, I don't think we will. I mean, and and because if you go back to the mid eighties, you have an extraordinary situation where, when Maxwell buys the Mirror in nineteen eighty four, Rupert Murdoch already owns the Sun. So the two of them are the two biggest power brokers in British political life. The Tories know they can never, never get re-elected without the support of the Sun. And the same is true with, of the Labour Party with the Mirror. These days, power operates in a very different way. I mean, you know, of course, Silicon Valley billionaires have their own agendas, but they're much less blatant, less public figures. They're not seeking to form policy in the way that actually certainly Murdoch was, but Maxwell wasn't particularly. I mean, Maxwell wasn't really an ideologue in the same way that Murdoch is. Uh, he was just <laughs> looking to advance himself. Yeah. And and in a way, the kind of the, the, the kabuki of modern power is you pretend you haven't got it and you wander around in a hoodie saying, yes, exactly. I don't influence the world at all. I'm just Mark Zuckerberg yeah. with my little website. To what extent then do you think that Maxwell was kind of playing the role of Press Baron? Because so much of it was central casting stuff. You know, the Doric columns in the Mirror headquarters that turn out to be hollow. You know, the insistence that his his boardroom has to be made out like a baronial hall when in fact it's a modern building. Was he kind of playing a role in his head, do you think? 
I think he probably was actually. I mean, I, I, I feel this, this sounds terribly crass, but you know, there is a sense that Maxwell, who changed his name four times by the time he was 23, never entirely knew who he was or was, com- was comfortable in his own skin. As I started writing the book and rese- well, researching it and then writing it, it just seemed more and more to me like a kind of strange version of an amalgam of Citizen Kane and the Great Gatsby. Even despite the fact that Maxwell himself was a kind of crazed mythomaniac, it really is a gargantuan mythical life. Yes, it's, and it's Melmot from the way we live now as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's that kind of just, yeah. it's all fake. There's, there's nothing there. Yeah. Well, there's, there's so much more it, we could go into on this on this book. The insane cast of of supporting characters, such as the shareholder of the News of the World, who is infatuated with Oswald Mosley and always gives him a peck on the cheek <laughs> and a pat on the bum when he meets him, or Nick Davis, the news edit, the, the foreign editor of the Daily Mirror, who has a sideline selling underwater televisions to the oil business and is married to Tegan from Doctor Who. It's just nuts, and I, I can't recommend it to the listeners it, 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 too highly. It's such a great read, but I wanted to ask you the question that has to be asked. What did you think actually happened on the yacht? Did he, uh-huh. did he simply lose his grip and fall? Was it suicide? Did Mossad hit Squad X come and sort him out? We've had all of these things. What do you think happened? Well, I've, I've found no evidence that he was bumped off, and it simply doesn't make sense that – Anybody, and there was, you know, there's unquestionably long queue of people who were uh, perfectly happy to see Maxwell bumped off. But why on earth go to the trouble of, of uh, sending kind of, you know, amphibious hitmen out to the middle of the Atlantic to tip him into the ocean at dead of night when he was such, he was so addicted to self publicity, virtually walked around with a target pinned to his forehead. So I don't, you know, the, the, the murder just doesn't wash for me. Was it suicide? Was it an accident? Maxwell knew he died in the early hours of November the 5th, 1991. Later that morning, he was due to fly back to London where he was going to face the kind of equivalent of three firing squads. I mean, he knew that the fraud squad was after him, the bankers were after him, and the mirror pensioners had found out that he was looting the pension funds. So if it was an accident, in many respects, in many respects it was an astonishingly fortuitous one. I cannot say categorically for sure. My gut feeling is that there's a more indistinct line between suicide and an accident than we might normally think. Mm. And I think I think the truth lies somewhere along that blurred line. You are famously the writer of a very English scandal, Hugh Grant as Jeremy Thorpe, another figure of fun to an extent who you humanised. I rather felt for Jeremy Thorpe after uh, watching the series. That story is almost run of the mill compared to, to Maxwell. You must be you must be <laughs> thinking of a TV adaptation at some point. This has to be in the works, surely to God. Well, uh, the rights have been bought by Working Title, so yes, that would, I hope so. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, it does have this astonishing epic sweep to it, more so, more so than, than Jeremy Thorpe, of course, which in a way was a kind of much more tightly confined story. Whereas, you know, this, this is kind of in a weird sense, is a, uh, almost the story of the 20th century. So, yes, I hope it's going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to be writing the script because I feel that it's much better to let someone else do that. Uh, and I was very lucky with Russell T. Davis did a, a very English scandal. Yes. So we'll see what happens with Maxwell. Um, but yes, 
if Succession is the Murdoch set, I'm, I'm looking forward to a far more farcical and free-ranging <laughs> and wilder and bigger version with the Maxwells. John Preston, thanks for joining me. It's been great talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Fall, the mystery of Robert Maxwell, is out now and it will leave no jaw undropped. Listeners, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another bunker. Remember, you can back us on Patreon to get the podcast early and free of ads. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Until then, forward with Britain. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>